Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. I'm Kevin Klinkenberg. I'm excited today to have my friend Paul Knight uh, joining us. This uh, uh, this is kind of a funny month for me. I get to, it seems like, get into some more academic uh, <laughs> subjects here this time. Uh, Paul, uh, how you doing? It's good to see you. Hey, doing well. Good to see you. It's it's good to be seen. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was uh, good seeing you at CNU earlier. Oh, look at you! All those play on words. You know, <laughs> You're not going to edit that out, are you? Oh heck no, <laughs> no, no. Any anything that's uh, a pun, it's got to stay in for sure. <laughs> I had actually had a college. You know, we're going to talk about some academic stuff. It reminds me, I had a college professor one time who said, uh, "A the pun is the lowest form of humor." <laughs> and he, he was just like a very serious guy and he hated it when people made puns uh and it was just it was like come on guy lighten up you know that's funny well, i've just, heard that ticklishness is the lowest form of pain <laughs> <laughs> you know that's probably about right you know? uh, i i i can empathize with that because when i was a kid my uh siblings would pin me down uh, mm-hmm. and and tickle me until it's I was just awful. about ready to pee my pants. You know? it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, so, Paul, uh, th- there's a lot of fun stuff I want us to talk about. Uh, we both have a shared interest in uh, street grids, in the mm-hmm. history of or- urban form uh, in America in particular. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of cool stuff that I want to hear about that I know you've been working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want people to know a little bit about you and, and your background. Uh, how did you get interested in the world of planning and, and architecture? And I know right now you're working, you're working at Historical Concepts. That's right. Mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. So for those who don't know, it's a an architecture and planning firm uh, outside of Atlanta. Did you know? Uh, did we ever talk about this? That I interviewed with Historical Concepts oh, about, you did. A, about a million uh, years ago. Oh, funny. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, it must have been about ninety nine or so. I interviewed with yeah. Jim Strickland and all. And oh wow, yeah, yeah. that's that's early on. I think I started yeah. my first summer uh, internship was in two thousand seven while I was mm-hmm. at Georgia Tech. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they were trying to get me to come down there, and and uh, it was it was very enticing. The firm does incredible, beautiful. Uh, work. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was it was not the right f- fit for me at the time, but mm-hmm. I've always just admired the work that uh, your mm-hmm. office produces. Well, you know, we're, we've got an office in New York now, um, so I'm sitting in Manhattan as we as we talk. <laughs> All right, fantastic. So, how did you come to this world? Were you always interested in like cities and and all that sort of stuff? No, uh, <laughs> when I was. Um, think, uh, yeah, when I was in middle school, I, I enjoyed drawing and mm-hmm. my dad, uh, bought me a drafting table and I enjoyed like drawing comic books and things like that. But in high school, I took a course on, uh, architecture, uh, drafting and absolutely hated it. it <laughs> the, the drawings and the plans were so messy with notes and dimensions mm-hmm. that I was just like, oh, this is terrible. This is not for me. And so I did not pursue it. Uh, I decided to pursue physics instead when I went to Georgia Tech. Um, and it was a couple years later that my hallmate, Jesse, uh, who is now uh, my coworker here at Historical Concepts, hmm. she was studying architecture. And I saw her like building models and doing all these cool drawings. And 
that, so that was my entree into the world of architecture. I saw the fun part of it at that point. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes me wonder how many how many people got turned off from them from like a high, awful high school drafting class? Cause, so. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. It yeah. was, uh, uh, yeah, just really, you know, boring and learning about AutoCAD and yeah. not cool design stuff. Just learning yeah. how to note a plan. That's <laughs> not, not inspiring. So did you switch up uh, degrees then while you're an undergraduate or? So while I was studying architecture, uh, I was introduced to city planning through mm-hmm. uh, Doug Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took his history of urban form course and was just absolutely blown away by like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the stories that he would tell us about mm-hmm. how cities grow and evolve over time. And uh, like all the, hidden structures of cities. Um, and so I, I did continue and, and finish my degree in architecture, but then I also got uh, a dual degree in city planning as well okay. um, and, and went through grad school. Right, right. And then uh, from that, uh, how long before you ended up uh, with historical concepts or uh, in so, this, this world? Yeah, so I had worked uh, with historical um, pretty much uh, every summer almost while I was, uh, at Georgia tech. Um, yeah. And I was there for almost, you know, nine years total and probably (laughs) did maybe five summers with, with historical. Um, and so I think it was 2013 or no, 2011 that I started full time. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and so the kind of work that you're doing now, is it mostly planning work or, or uh, how's you know, that? We've, yeah, we've recently uh, started, um, we've allocated a few people here to focus on planning work. Um, and so I'm, I'm one of those uh, lucky few that's kind of spearheading that the little planning studio that we have here. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, lately I've been uh, working with uh, small towns, um, mostly uh, doing projects in Georgia and uh, North Carolina, uh, New York, up in Long Island. Um, and it's been really fun and rewarding getting to kind of, you know, touch on design work that affects a lot of people. Yeah. And you get to put some theory into practice, which is always fun. Yeah. No, that, Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's have some fun. Let's talk a little bit about the theory part of it. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, I, you mentioned Doug Allen. It's an, um, I had the pleasure. I think the first time I met him was at a CNU when we were speaking on a panel together to talk about um, street grids and, and American grids. Uh, and oh, interesting. Uh, I, th- I always felt like I probably learned more in that like half an hour of his presentation uh, mm-hmm. that I did like entire semesters mm-hmm. of college, mm-hmm. uh, especially <laughs> yep. in, about planning. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you were among people after Doug passed, you were among people that helped set up the Doug Allen Institute, uh, right. correct? Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and we kind of use that as a launching point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, uh, 2014, uh, Doug Allen, um, unfortunately passed away and, uh, a, you know, a group of us, uh, who were very close to Doug, um, we got together and my initial idea was to kind of take all of his history of urban form lectures, 
that he taught at Georgia Tech for 35 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and over that time had crafted this thing to just perfection. And so, you know, I wanted to take all those lectures and distill it down into a book. And one of my other professors at the time, David Green, he said, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I want to start an institute. <laughs> and I thought, oh, uh, okay, that's a little bit uh, bigger deal than a book. But yeah, sure, let's let's give it a try. So uh, a number of us, um, I think at the time it was maybe nine of us, uh, got together and formed the Doug Allen Institute for the Study of Cities. And uh, so since then, we have been uh, focusing on our mission, which is essentially to continue Doug's work and research in urban form and to continue to make sure that all those lessons that he taught so many students uh, during his tenure at Georgia Tech, um, make sure that those lessons continue to be taught. So how would you, how would you distill the work that he did? Like what, what would you say is really important uh, about his lectures in particular and that, that course, the history of urban form? Mm -hmm. So I think, so I've had, um, I don't know, uh, see if I graduate, I probably took the course for the first time in 2006. And then, so here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's that math? 17, 17 years, years later. later. <laughs> so I think at this point, I've been thinking about it, you know, pretty much every day since then. Um, and for me, the, what it did for me was it kind of distilled the messiness of cities, mm-hmm. uh, down to its essential components. You know, when you, When you walk around a city, it's really easy to get distracted. So you've got buildings and people and trash and, uh, you know, you hear things and you uh, smell things and, you know, you're driving around or you're walking. It's, it's, you know, um, oftentimes a messy place. And, Mm -hmm. and so it's easy to just kind of get, you know, overwhelmed by that or to not even see the order within all of that. Um, And, and so what Doug did is he showed how if you, you know, imagine kind of taking a, a city and throwing it into a, into a pot and like turning the heat on and you just kind of like boil things down and things start to separate. And cities are essentially separated into two different domains. So you've got a public domain and a private domain. Mm-hmm. And so within those domains, you've got these different layers. So in the public domain, you've got things like property lines, uh, blocks and streets, uh, parks and monuments. So these are kind of like the, the public framework that organizes the city. And then in the private domain, you've got things like people and buildings and trees and, you know, kind of all the things that when you walk around a city, you know, those are the things that you really see and experience. And, um, but those are also the things that change over time, you know, more readily. So buildings can be torn down. Um, you know, I think the, the average life expectancy of a building is about 80 years. Like if you average, you know, 
crappy commercial buildings on up to uh, nice residential buildings. It's like mm -hmm. an 80 year average. Um, same with, you know, people live about 80 years, street mm -hmm. trees last about 80 years. Um, and so all those things change over time, but it's kind of what we're hit with when we first see cities. And, and so through Doug's course, he was just helped you kind of peel back those layers and to see what really is the city. You know, what, like if everybody went away or if all the buildings fell down, what's left? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that public framework. And uh, I think part of the work of the Institute is you made all of that uh, available online. Is that right? Yes. The, the lectures? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so if you so go to DougAllenInstitute.org. And those were, those were recorded lectures of him giving the presentations? Yes. So um, luckily, uh, you know, Doug had never recorded these lectures before. I mean, barely even wrote them down, really. Um, but a year before he passed away, he, um, or actually I think it was a year before he was diagnosed with, with brain cancer, he was teaching this course and had just decided to record it. And so was able to, um, to, yeah, re you know, record his, uh, you know, get his genius <laughs> finally mm -hmm. written down instead of just stuck in his head. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. So I remember the the presentation and the, the panel we were on, he gave, <clears throat> excuse me, he gave this, uh, uh, fairly brief, but fascinating, uh, history about the early uh, settlement of the United States, basically, mm -hmm. uh, through the from the colonial period uh, up through uh, past the uh, Revolutionary War and all that was fascinating. So, like, uh, I'll see if I can uh, test your memory well. So, one of the one of the little tidbits that I learned uh, from him was that it's actually people give the misnome they misname the plan for the United States. They call it the Jeffersonian grid, but it's not really a Jeffersonian grid. Do you remember right. this? I, I, I do remember that it's actually not Jefferson, um, mm. but I can't remember the details. Yeah. And, and I, I thought about this just before we recorded it today that uh, I should look that up because I still have the slide where he talks about it. But yeah, there was another legislator that proposed the actual subdivision uh, with the mile square grid in the right. United States that is attributed to Jefferson, but it was that was actually not the plan that Jefferson himself proposed. Right. Yeah. Jefferson had written uh, his ideas on that previously, but but yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was not so, technically not his grid. Right. So there were all sorts of fun little tidbits like mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, all throughout. And uh, if I remember right, I, I I think at the time I was presenting and talking about Savannah and the Savannah plan, mm -hmm. uh, which also has its own kind of unique contribution to uh, American history uh, in that regard. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. But you and I, so you and I kind of met in that world because we, mm -hmm. uh, we had, <laughs> have had that shared interest in uh, the American uh, grid in a lot of ways. And, the, the misunderstood uh, urban form. <laughs> right. And, and uh, I suppose uh, I was, uh, put in place in many, in many of these discussions as like the defender of the grid, yeah, <laughs> uh, which is true. Uh, but so, yeah. so tell me what's your, what's your best defense of, uh, cause we've got, we've got many friends and colleagues who think, <laughs> think that the American city grids are awful. 
they make for terrible cities compared to uh, places in other countries. What What's your best defense of the uh, American street grid? My, my best defense is just to go to a city with a grid and just, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like, go to Chicago, go to New Orleans, go to uh, every small town in America. Like, all these great examples of urbanism. Uh, they're out there and they are predicated on a grid. And uh, I mean, you know, not all great examples of urbanism are on a grid, right. but uh, many grids produce uh, many great cities. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you gave a few uh, really great examples there. I mean, San Francisco is another one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've often had this debate back and forth. Uh, the, uh, the, anti-grid people will talk about how it's, you know, it's monotonous and, Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't, um, sort of account for topography very well. Um, but then you go to someplace like San Francisco, which has a pretty Mm -hmm. relentless street grid laid over topography Mm -hmm. and it's adapted and modified in some just absolutely incredible ways. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've always thought about comparing San Francisco to New York, um, both predicated on a grid but in San Francisco's case, they preserved the topography. And in New York's case, they largely flattened the topo- uh, topography, um, except in, in uh, the more northern part of the city. But I've tried uh, to ask, and maybe I should ask ChatGPT this question too, but <laughs> um, you know, what, what is the compelling argument for preserving topography. Like if, if Manhattan had instead preserved its topography, how exactly would that benefit the ecosystem and us and everything else? Um, Mm -hmm. I've always had that kind of question. Yeah. And I think probably in the history of uh, a lot of cities, there was never really the interest in preserving most topography. It was really mm-hmm. just in cases where it was so extreme that it, there was no way they were going to be able to modify it uh, mm-hmm. affordably. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, and, right. Yeah, someplace like Manhattan, they could fairly easy flatten it out uh, as part of the grid. Or like my city in Kansas City, there's a lot of places mm-hmm. where it was flattened out. But um, you can't really do that very well in, in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, so it was a little tricky for him in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, in your work, have you gotten uh, the opportunity to try to do town plans or any extensions of town plans that are uh, more of a sort of a traditional street grid? Mm-hmm. Um, so i so I've yet to encounter, you know, let's say uh, a one hundred acre greenfield site, um, you know, where I could just be like, "All right, we're doing a grid right here." Mm-hmm. Um, most of our work has been uh, within some kind of context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though like the same principles that drive my, um, my adoration for grids apply, but things end up having to get a little, a little bit more wonky in order to respond to things like creeks or property lines or you know an existing town hall or or whatever Mm -hmm. so it it will be uh like i will always draw a a very well connected uh little town plan but it Mm -hmm. may not necessarily be a a rigid 
uh, gridiron. <laughs> yeah. And so how would you, you know, people talk, uh, let's say lay people talk about cities and I've certainly heard this from like family members and others where they, they will look at, um, cities that were built on a fairly routine, regular grid system. And then at a certain point in time in the 20th century, you know, that just mm-hmm. changed mm-hmm. and, uh, you, uh, had discontinuous grids, you have a very different pattern, uh, and they often it's like, why is that? You know, uh, you know, why did we get away from uh, the sort of simple earlier grid patterns? So how would how do you how do you explain uh, that phenomenon? I think it's there are two ways to answer that. Um, the first is uh, up until the early twentieth century, cities were largely laid out just based on convention. You know, someone, some developer, some property owner uh, wanted to develop their property and would just lay it out based on a grid just because that's how it was done. I mean, it was easy. It was efficient. Mm-hmm. It made sense, you know. Um, and and so over time, that convention kind of just was, um, you know, passed off to more of a regulatory approach to city planning, which between the early 20th century and the mid 20th century, um, it, it, it started to morph more into this automobile er, uh, era, um, started to, you know, like garden city type stuff started to um, kind of get into these regulatory systems and codified. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it, you even had like, for example, um, in uh, some manuals on, you know, how to lay out a city, there would be like an image of a grid and it would say bad on the bottom. <laughs> and then there would be an image of like cul-de-sacs and swoopy roads and it would say mm-hmm. good. And, you know, those things just kind of took over. And I mean, especially now that um, the, the, I, so going back to what Doug Allen taught about cities being public and private property, uh, um, the distribution of public and private property in the olden days, um, (laughs) the public component of cities was designed first and Mm -hmm. then the private component came on top of that framework. But then following uh, the, this regulatory system of the 20th century, they turned that on its head. So it all came to focus on private property and then, and you know, like, especially through zoning. And then all the public infrastructure was literally an afterthought. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, oh, we got to regulate use. We got to think about the number of car trips between this use and that use. We got to think about curb cuts. We got to think about like all these details. But the thing that they don't think about anymore is the overall street network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's walk through that a little bit because I've, I, I know just enough about all that to be dangerous and probably get a lot of stuff wrong. But um, it, it kind of struck me that like if you were to say like the late 19th century and and you were part of an American city that was developing and growing as many were at that time period, uh, it was a period Mm -hmm. of rapid growth Mm -hmm. uh, all over the country. 
And uh, the street, the sort of checkerboard grid pattern was very, very common uh, at that point. So most, in like my city, obviously, in Kansas City here, our, if we, our boom period was probably the 1880s to the 1920s uh, in, in many respects. Um, it, city, city government and oversight uh, was very minimal uh, in that era. Uh, there were no planning departments. Right. There, there was no planning commissions. There was no zoning ordinance. Right. Uh, how did the, but yet, you know, entire neighborhoods were developed. Uh, how would those streets and patterns have been laid out? Was it, uh, was it property owners um, basically did a survey and laid something out and, I mean, they weren't really seeking approval from anybody or was it how much of it were cities themselves proactively saying this is where the rights of ways are going to be? I mean, a a lot of it was just developer by developer. And in these cases that they had, you know, substantial tracts of land. Um, Mm -hmm. So in, uh, for example, downtown Atlanta, there, there are three uh, predominantly three tracts of land that make up kind of the, the central core of downtown Atlanta. And as that developed over time, like, you know, one developer oriented it to, uh, to right angles with their, with their property lines. The next developer oriented it to uh, the right angles with the railroad that came sweeping through. And then the, the other one kind of did the same thing. So you end up with this like a wonky little quilt kind of framework of these three very rigid grids, but they just kind of crash into each other at, at these odd angles. And um, uh, since I'm living up here in New York now, I've been, uh, I've been looking at New York city maps uh, a lot and there's you know substantial, obviously substantial development uh, here in the city that also took place in the 1800s. And you know, it's, it's like, just imagine taking downtown Atlanta and just doing that hundreds of times. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just happened so extensively here. If you look at Brooklyn, uh, I mean, it's just little patchwork after patchwork of all these grids oriented in all these different directions, just slamming up, you know, relative to each other. Um, and, and so it, it, that's just how it, it happened. Uh, just yeah. parcel by parcel with so big it, parcels. <laughs> yeah. So it does strike me, like you said, a lot of that was just convention. Um, mm-hmm. it, that was, uh, it was the logical, easy thing for people to do. And it kind of tied in also with the American system of property ownership, um, which was really all about um, developers trying to create parcels to subdivide, to sell to mm-hmm. people, um, which was different from the European experience, for example, right. where a lot of them came from. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, so I, I've always found that kind of interesting to think about, like, because, you know, I know you and I've had this discussion before in, in thinking about street grids that uh, why don't uh, today, why don't more planners or planning commissions just take that initiative and say, plan out the street grid for however their city is growing uh, mm-hmm. and then have property owners work within that framework. Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, have you had those discussions with planners before? And yes, I, I have. And, you know, it, I think it boils down. I really think it boils down to public education, uh, not just like 
the pu- education of the public, but education of planners as well. Um, you know, it, it's it's still uh, in planning school. It's still an afterthought to even discuss street networks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, planning school focus focuses uh, very heavily on um, you know zoning and public policy and administration um, administration yeah. things that are important but you know it's it's just missing that that fundamental layer of urbanism which mm-hmm. is the the distribution of public versus private property and yeah. and so you know i think uh, you know this is our part of our mission at the Doug Allen Institute is to just get this information out there and to show all of the you know, very obvious to, to me and us, uh, the positive benefits to planning uh, for the future, planning a, a street network that can accommodate all these uh, unforeseen land uses that will come your way. You know, you cannot predict the future. Um, and so the best thing you can do is to create a framework that can accommodate all possible futures. Right. Uh that's a great, great pitch for the uh, Doug Allen Institute. And so is, is a, uh, it, all those resources, are they free online or how's that work? Yeah, uh, they are free. Um, we've got uh, uh, YouTube videos of Doug's lectures. Uh, we've got um, a resource called the Urban Forum Standard that mm-hmm. actually it started off as a book that Doug and I were working on together. And, and so what's what's up there now is basically like a first, uh, a, a first good draft of the mm-hmm. book. Um, and so it, it's, it's free to check out. So what, it, what's the nature of the urban forum standard? What's the, what's the content there? So it, it distills the lessons of, of, uh, Doug's history of urban form, uh, at the beginning to, to focus on, um, why streets are so important. And, you know, just kind of using historical references and showing how streets can last for hundreds and thousands of years and uh, why we need to uh, collectively remember to start with streets and then worry about land uses. And then after that introduction, we get into uh, the specifics of, okay, so we want to design this master street plan. Well, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it starts off by looking at a hundred different cities, you know, a hundred great places. And we used as a base, um, the, uh, American planning associations list of great neighborhoods, you know, cause we didn't want anybody to come to us and say, Oh, you selectively picked, you know, you know, mm-hmm. whatever would fit your model or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so instead we kind of outsourced the selection to the American Planning Association. And every year they produce a list of great neighborhoods. And so we took that list at the time, I think it um, maybe it was like uh, 10 or 15 years worth of great neighborhoods and analyzed every single one of those, uh, you know, a hundred acres of, of those uh, towns and counted up the blocks, measured the blocks, looked at the street network, um, looked at the parks and kind of quantified what was happening in all those neighborhoods and developed these 
uh, we call them rules of, of urban design. So we've got, uh, we start with the uh, number one rule being block size. Mm -hmm. If, if you can only do one thing, you know, this would be the rule that could capture like 80% of what we're talking about. Um, and that's, you know, just to make sure that blocks are, have a perimeter of, you know, somewhere around 2000 feet, uh, sides that are at least around 200 feet long and maybe at most around 600 feet long. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm using these kind of around and at least, uh, terms is because it's, it's not an exact science. Like you can always find yeah. an anomaly somewhere, even in a very consistently designed neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the, the goal is just to kind of get the gist of it, you know, the, the bulk of the design <clears throat> should follow these rules. And mm -hmm. so then from block size, we go on to talking about right of way widths and alleys and, um, or, uh, street network orientation and things like that. Mm. So that's called the urban form standard, urban form standard. And right. I think that's yeah. .com. I don't know if we have a .org for that, <laughs> but you can also, it, there's also a link to it at the yeah. Doug Allen website. Do you remember, or did you ever see the work that our friend Lee Sobel produced about uh, courthouse uh, or um, courthouse towns? Yeah. Or county yeah. seat towns, I should say. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Uh, Lee has never published this before. I think he presented it at one mm -hmm. or two CNUs, but it's also really interesting. He basically, he surveyed, uh, with just aerial uh, mapping every county seat town in the country uh, to basically look for patterns mm -hmm. uh, at how they were developed and came up with uh, basically category ended up categorizing them into uh, a group, a pretty small group of uh, different plan types and patterns that have been repeated uh, over and over. I mean, there, there are a lot of variations. There's a lot of really mm -hmm. funny, interesting twists. Yeah. And, and I think his thought process on that was like in many, uh, many parts of the country, it was the county seat that would have uh, had more more uh, formal planning uh, associated with it because it was the seat of county government. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so it's really, it, but it's interesting because it kind of shows that the prevalence of those uh, patterns but also lots of really interesting variations that you see, you know, all over the country. Some of which are just utterly bizarre when you mm -hmm. when you look at them. Uh, on a map. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like you said, there's like there's there's rules, uh, and there's sort of patterns to live by. But it doesn't mean you can't break them and do some right. other things with it. Yeah, yeah. There. I mean, we we took the very scientific approach, but you know, it's also an art. <laughs> yeah. 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 No doubt. No doubt. So the other thing um, is, is the urban form Atlas part of that same work then? Uh, it, it is tangentially part of that okay. same work. Like it, it's a, uh, maybe an offshoot. Um, yeah. So the, the urban form Atlas is kind of taken the, that precedent research of the urban form standard and um, presenting our precedent analysis in a very uh, compelling and beautiful way. So uh, last year, or actually it was the beginning of this year, uh, January 2023, yeah, um, we uh, successfully 
had a Kickstarter campaign funded, mm -hmm. um, and which allowed us to develop 10 um, beautifully designed maps of these great uh, uh, cities in the U.S. and and kind of look at it through the filter of this urban form uh, analysis uh, that I just talked about. So mm -hmm. looking at the blocks, looking at whether they're alleys or, or, or not, uh, looking at uh, how wide are the rights of way. And then we did that for 10 uh, cities. And then we developed one plate that kind of uh, uh, summarizes our findings into some uh, infographics. And hmm. our hope is to continue that work and um, to keep to keep that uh, project going because um, you know we only did 10, uh, 10 neighborhoods. So there's thousands you know out there that are worthy of, of study. Yeah, interesting. Okay. And that is and that's also available online somewhere to look at or if, if you go to dougallininstitute.org, there is a link uh, to the Urban Form Atlas, and you can purchase a PDF, and mm -hmm. your purchase will help help the institute uh, continue to do this kind of work. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'd highly recommend that stuff. It, you know, if you're if you're at all interested in cities or uh, planning or nerding out on this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. that it's pretty pretty amazing and. And it's definitely worth anybody's time to go watch the uh, lecture series, um, mm -hmm. the Doug Allen lectures. Um, so, Paul, I want to talk also while I've got you. Uh, you, when one of the last times that I saw you was at the CNU in Savannah uh, when we when we hosted that one, and you gave this really great presentation uh, that I still tell people about, which is kind of talking about base ten versus base twelve. <laughs> Uh, which really gets, it sounds esoteric, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I think I actually found it really interesting and it's kind of warped my thinking uh, a little bit <laughs> awesome. in, in many ways. Oh, that's fine. Many daily ways that I like, realize now. You know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, and, you know, base 10 versus uh, base 12, it, you know, we're taught to count by tens. I mean, you know, we've got 10 fingers. Uh, we think, oh, the metric system, boy, they know what they're doing because, you know, that's based on uh, base 10 and uh, boy, it's so easy. But then if you really kind of look around and think about it, it's like, oh, wait a minute, my my ruler has 12 inches and my clock has 12 hours and my measuring cup has, uh, you know, is divided up into thirds and quarters and, um uh, humans, uh, you know, we are, we literally divide in, in, you know, as when we're conceived, we divide into half and, mm -hmm. and those cells, you know, continue to divide into halves. And, and so if you take all these different divisions of halves and thirds and quarters, uh, it actually turns out that mathematically it's just a lot easier to deal with that on a base 12 system than a base 10 system. And the Babylonians knew it because uh, they actually used base 60, which is mm. related, but you can actually count uh, with your fingers uh, using your thumb as the index. And so you can go to each digit on, on your finger. So one, two, three, and then my middle, 
four, five, six, and then my ring, seven, eight, nine, and then my pinky, 10, 11, 12. Hmm. And so you can, and then you can use your other hand to then count how many 12s you just counted. And so then you can, you know, count up to 60 with, with two hands. Um, but, you know, in, in the field, if you're, if you're a carpenter or you're a surveyor, the math based on uh, base 12 is, is ju it's just a lot easier to do the mental math around it and you don't need a, a calculator. And so part of that is just because it, you can divide it up in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and then whereas, the, yeah, 10 is much harder to divide. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, um, we don't ever divide things just once, you know, it's not like one and done. We'll like divide up some land and then so-and-so inherits it. And then they have some kids and then they, those kids get the land and then their kids get the land. And so things get divided up consecutively over time. And so, uh, oh yeah, in that presentation, I did a, uh, I had a, a diagram that showed, okay, if we do these successive subdivisions on 10 or a thousand, and we do the same thing to 1200, you know, how does that math shake out? And, and so I think 10 made it to, I don't know, like three levels of, of subdivision, whereas 12 got all the way down to uh, 10 levels of subdivision. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that, you know, this nature of 12-ness gets inherited. And so the usefulness of it can extend through time. Um, <laughs> there's actually a, the Dozenal Society of America. <laughs> so you should go check <laughs> it out. That's great. <laughs> Interesting. So then, you know, part of your case that you were making is as planners and designers are working on plans, they should start from basically a base 12 system instead of working off base 10. Like, so uh, in terms of laying out streets and blocks or mm -hmm. anything else, is, is that right? Is that a fair? Yeah. Thing? So, you know, instead of doing, uh, a 58 foot right of way and a 107 foot lot and you know just all these like numbers that make no sense and have no usefulness for anything you know consider doing a 60 foot by 120 foot deep lot and then you mm -hmm. put those together and you've got a 240 foot block and then you add them up side by side and you've got a 360 foot block or a 420 foot block and you've got a 60 foot right of way and you know, so if you if you embed this kind of DNA of 12-ness into things, then it produces, uh, you know, these these efficiencies um, mm -hmm. that, you know, things will start to, to stack up together really well. Um, mm -hmm. And you won't have these like awkward leftover seven feet or two yeah. feet or whatever. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think I, I probably... Uh, in in past planning exercises, I'm pretty sure I used 50 foot right aways pretty commonly. Mm -hmm. uh, That's common. And, you know, it makes me now think about those truth is, you know, part of that was because we we're always fighting the engineers and we wanted to force it to be tighter. Yeah. To force mm -hmm. them to have smaller roads. But the right. the 60 foot right aways definitely it gives you a more generous uh, parkway area or tree lawn area. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said for that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so are, are you a, a defender that you should, would you call yourself a defender of the imperial uh, numerical system? I, uh, absolutely. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you say to the, to people who are always trying to push, push the metric system onto us? 
I'd say just go read a clock. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read, uh, so there was a great book that I read not long ago that talked about, um, I think it actually ended up getting into the gridded plan for the United States, but it was, it talked about the origin of a lot of the numbers, weights, and measures that we use today mm-hmm. and, and kind of how they all ultimately came together in different yeah. places. Yeah. It, 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 it really is a fascinating history. And I, I got really deep into it uh, during grad school, um, which was, you know, a dozen years ago. So I cannot remember the details. A, a dozen. So <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is a fascinating history. You know, there's a reason that things developed the way they did. Um, you know, there's a reason that we decided to go from a 5,000 foot mile to a 5,280 foot mile. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an incredible relationship between the imperial system and, or the, the base 12 and base 10 through the chain uh, system, you know, 66 mm-hmm. foot chains um, where you can kind of jump back and forth between the two systems uh, very easily. Well, it was 60, it was 66 feet. That's a rod. Is that right? Is... 66 foot is a chain. I think a rod was 16 and okay. Okay. a half feet. Yeah. So yeah. I got that right. Cause there was, there, there was another lecture that I think maybe John Norquist used to give that mm-hmm. it, and it was a certain number of rods that was based may, may have, if it was maybe like five rods. So the, like the typical American main street was basically a certain number of rods. Yeah. Yeah. Them. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so there's a long history with all that and in, in, mm-hmm. in the world of planning, I, I think one of the things that I remember and a takeaway from reading a lot of that history was just, you know, how much of those measures were based on typical human dimensions. And that's mm-hmm. what, uh, you know, the, that a lot of people were starting with, and then they eventually got standardized. Yeah. That's, and that's, you know, one of the, the arguments that comes up in, the uh, dozen old society literature is that, <laughs> you know, the, the unit of measure uh, for the metric system is based on, you know, some number of uh, uh, oscillations of the cesium atom or something that has zero relation to, you know, anything that we do or anything that we would need measurement for. Right. Um, well, fortunately, uh, we're the holdouts in that regard. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank goodness. Yeah. Even the one good thing about America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Paul, you had also on your notes that you, you sent me this, uh, uh, tweet storm thing that was pretty interesting that had to do with, uh, that had to do with some thoughts about inflation. This may seem like a complete tangent, uh, from our other discussions, but I thought it was really interesting what you shared. Uh, and, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about like where you were going with this? It was a very different <laughs> sort of outlook on inflation and how it impacts the built environment than mm-hmm. what, than what people might be used to. So, um, one thing that I encountered early on in my architecture education was why the hell are all these buildings so ugly now? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my, my, that introduced me then to the difference between this modernist architecture and traditional or classical architecture. And so I kind of went down that path uh, and here I am at historical concepts. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, a, a kind of a deeper 
question is why aren't we building cathedrals anymore? And, you know, part of that I'm sure is answered by, you know, status of religion institutions and things like that. But part of it can, I think, also be answered um, through a study of monetary policy. And so, you know, we live in an age where we have these uh, fiat units of currency called, mm-hmm. you know, like, for example, a U.S. dollar is just this little piece of paper. Um, and back in the, I can't remember what the, you know, 1913 or whatever, that piece of paper used to be backed one for one by a little bar of gold held mm-hmm. in some bank somewhere. But over time, uh, these politicians, you know, wanted to uh, appease more and more people or fight more and more wars. And so in order to, to fund that, uh, they came up with the idea of uh, kind of in, inflating uh, these units uh, at a, a higher rate relative to the gold that was actually there. And so, and now we're to a point where these uh, you know, paper bills aren't backed by anything, just mm-hmm. uh, literally the, the faith and uh, the uh, military of the US government. and. And so that uh, the policy of the Federal Reserve is to have a 2% annualized inflation rate and to try to stabilize the economy around that. And they argue that that promotes um, growth and economic stimulus and and so on. The problem with a 2% rate of inflation uh, in the context of trying to build a cathedral over 100 years or you know, many of them took 500 years Mm -hmm. is you just can't do it. Um, You know, so let's say back in the day you had a gold standard of, of, you know, literal gold coins that you use to pay um, uh, for construction projects. So gold uh, maintains its value very well over time. You know, the famous or not famous, but uh, kind of the standard saying is that you could buy a, a nice gentleman's suit uh, with a gold coin back in ancient Rome, and you can do the same <laughs> in modern times. Um, and, you know, there's some truth to that. But, you know, so let's just say in uh, the Middle Ages, you've got these gold coins, and you're the church, you've collected all your gold coins, and you've got however many thousands of them to build your, your cathedral. And so you develop a plan for 300 years to uh, fund that cathedral. And because you're on a gold standard, the value of that gold when you start construction is pretty much equal to the value of that gold at the end of the construction 300 years later. And so the money that you have at the beginning can actually last for 300 years. But then do the same thing with a 2% rate of inflation and you run out of money after 50 years. And so even, you know, you think, oh, 2%, that's not that bad, but, you know, compound interest works the same in both directions. Mm -hmm. So if you're inflating currency away, that that rate or that uh, the harshness of that inflation gets worse and worse as your time horizon goes out. Yeah. And so, and it only gets worse, you know, the the higher the rate of inflation, like we're going through now. Mm-hmm. 
So um, yeah. yeah, that was yeah. that was one rabbit hole that I went down trying to link, <laughs> you know, what what is happening in the world? <laughs> what what just trying to make sense of this. You run this by uh any friends who are either uh real economists or like to play economists and talk about that approach? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, in addition to my interest in architecture and, and city planning, um, I do have this, uh, a Bitcoin side of me, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that in, in 2016, I was in New York, uh, for, to get a, a architecture award uh, for a project I was working on. And I just happened to see, uh, what is Bitcoin sign in the window? Mm-hmm. And I just, I just thought, oh, what is Bitcoin? And when I got home, I started reading about it, and I am still stuck in the rabbit hole from that mm-hmm. from that first book. It it m- made me think not just what is Bitcoin, but what is money? Mm-hmm. And then you know that question leads you to, oh, what does money do? And then that question leads you to, oh, there's better money and worse money. And, and how like money is the lubricant between everything we do in society. And with my focus in architecture and city planning, I started to actually kind of put the pieces together of how, how monetary policy affects this realm that I'm in, uh, that like intimately familiar with like architecture and, and planning and to see, um, yeah, how that's affected by it. Yeah, I mean, we've often remarked about how incredible it is that uh, even if you just look at the short window of time that's American history, how a hundred years ago, when we were measurably much poorer as a country, mm-hmm. the architecture we built was so much. I'm just, I'll just say, so much better. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. so much more. Uh, ornament detail built with better materials, better materials, mm-hmm. uh, better built. I mean, bet, you know, better craftsmanship mm-hmm. uh, by and large. Um, I mean, I think our our new buildings today are structurally much sounder generally, and and we have a lot of great technology and features mm-hmm. in them. But yep. um, but there's no question that uh, a lot of what we built, and that's not even to talk about buildings that were built three, four, five hundred, or a thousand years ago, uh, that were of remarkable quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's always been, you know, it's something that we've kind of riddled about, like what, how do you account for, I, I mean, I work on, I have a development project now I'm working on it. It's amazing, amazing the struggles you have to produce a building with halfway decent materials mm-hmm. uh, in, in our world today. Yeah. Or yeah. to do brick on all sides of a building is just uh, unheard of, like in a developer yeah. project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I, yeah. you know, I had. Clay Chapman on here, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about his buildings and his experience. And uh, there, there is an interesting uh, twist now how uh, there is so much, uh, there are so many code requirements that have been put on even contemporary wood framed um, buildings that the old school triple white masonry buildings that he's building, you, really there's not a lot of cost differential out of that anymore to produce a building than like if you mm-hmm. were going to build a wood frame building with a brick veneer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a wild, uh, it's a wild scenario how much uh, just visual garbage we produce, uh, <laughs> it, you know, in a world where we're, we're such a rich country, mm-hmm. uh, we have such immense wealth and yet 
so much of what we can, I mean, I always think about this. What really breaks my heart most of the time is when I, I, you know, you go around and you see like new churches uh, or oh civic, civic buildings that are being built yeah. and they're like, you know, they're metal buildings. They're yeah, buildings. it's like a strip mall unit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, what a what an incredibly different approach that is to what maybe our grandparents or great grandparents um, did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, Chuck Marin has talked a lot about this uh, at Strong Towns. Um, yeah, that kind of link between the economic forces and yeah you know, the um, at play on architecture. Yeah, and you know, I'm not uh, smart enough to to understand, you know, all, how all those pieces work together. But I think there's no doubt that, um, there are so many changes we put in place over our, in our world in the last hundred years that, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you just can't help but look around and say, I'm sorry, but what we're producing generally is worse. Yeah. Um, or it's yeah. certainly the, I would say the average building that we built today is not nearly uh, as good a quality as the average building a hundred years mm-hmm. ago. Well, they're not yeah. built to last, you know, they're built to, to, you know, last to the end of the pro forma, you know, yeah. seven years or 10 years yeah. or whatever it is. <laughs> except, except they do last. So that's the crazy <laughs> thing. It's like, because, you know, even a lot of crappy homes built with T111 siding and, you know, other things, they're still around 40 years mm-hmm. later or 50 years later. Um, yeah. Because it becomes, you get that sunk cost of the fact that they're there. Well, one thing I've noticed in living in New York City is I really, it it almost feels like I live in the ruins of a once great city. Hmm. Um, You know, you walk around and I see, you know, all this incredible, like truly incredible infrastructure that Mm -hmm. was built to, uh, to accommodate all the people that were moving into this city. I mean, like, um, um, aqueducts and, uh, you know, roadway networks and, uh, sewage plants, like, uh, sewage treatment plants that are actually like really beautiful, like well done works of architecture with like rusticated boulders. And, um, and, you know, now you walk around and, you know, you go in the subway and just like everything is rusted. Like they're, you know, they're not, uh, uh, maintaining it. And, you know, this is a, a big strong towns thing. It's like, you right. can't just build it once you've got to maintain it over time. And so, you know, New York, they built all this great infrastructure, but here we are a hundred years later and it has not been maintained. <laughs> and so I'm just waiting for things to start collapsing. It makes for a, a great movie set. Did you ever, did you ever see that uh, movie? I think from the eighties. I think it was called Escape from New York. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, where they, where they turn all of Manhattan into a high security prison. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> Snake something or other was the main character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because basically, what happens is like the I think it's the president and the first lady crash into it, and then there's this whole like rescue <laughs> mission to rescue them from the. Uh, you know, uh, high security prison of Manhattan. It, it's wild. It makes for, it, there's great shots in the uh, supposed subway system and everything else. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. But I mean, I know what you mean. My brother lives in the city of St. Louis mm-hmm. and uh, like, you know, like a lot of older cities, the public infrastructure that was built a uh, hundred, 150 years ago, they have in St. Louis, they have these water towers 
um, that were, you know, there are historic water towers that are still yeah. functioning yeah. that, and there's multiple of them. They're gorgeous. They're yeah. just like incredible pieces of architecture and sculpture mm-hmm. that are, are just amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And now, now we're, now we just do the basic, you know, most simple engineered thing that mm-hmm. we uh, can possibly do. So something else, yeah. um, Paul, it's been about an hour. We should wrap this up. Uh, I do want to ask you one, uh, final question that I ask all my guests, Okay, uh, which is, this is the messy city podcast. Uh, and, uh, when I, uh, when I say that phrase, I like to know what, what do you think of? Is there a city, a neighborhood, a place that, uh, makes you think that you think about that kind of fits the term of like a messy city? Uh, so when I, when we first moved uh, here to New York, we lived in Brooklyn. Um, and I've got to say like that, it was, um, it was a, uh, an awesome experience to live there. And, and, you know, Brooklyn is a big, uh, very large borough. Um, and I lived in Cobble Hill, which I've since learned is like the primo, uh, spot in Brooklyn. Um, and you know, to me, it just had like all those layers of urbanism that that Doug Allen would talk about mm-hmm. uh, done in a way that was like well-designed, well-done, well-balanced. Um, you know, it was, there's a lot of people there, but it's not like overcrowding. Like I kind of feel like it is here in Manhattan. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's order, but there's a lot of disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when we first moved there, I parked our moving truck and it was just like mayhem. Like I felt like I was back in India. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's like people just jaywalking all over the place and illegally parked everywhere and their cops are standing there and they're not doing anything about it. And, you know, it's just like this, uh, this messiness that I really enjoyed. Um, so, yeah. That's fantastic. All right. We'll have to put that on the list. I've spent a little time in Brooklyn, but Mm -hmm. not nearly enough. And that sounds like a great place to visit. So Paul, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, Everybody check out the Doug Allen Institute uh, when you get time. And uh, Paul, let's, uh, let's do this again sometime. Thanks a lot. Thank you.